Due to an unfortunate audio recording issue, this month's episode of Are You Just Watching is not quite up to its usual high audio standards. Please accept our most sincere apologies. Science takes on the supernatural in this nostalgic sequel to the 1984 classic. Are You Just Watching? Episode 123, Ghostbusters Afterlife. Welcome to the podcast that shares critical thinking for the entertained Christian. I'm Eve Franklin. I'm Tim Martin. I don't know that we necessarily were scraping the bottom of the barrel on this one, but, you know, it wouldn't be a movie that I would normally choose to talk about because, if I must be honest, I don't believe I've watched a Ghostbusters movie since possibly the 90s. (laughs) (laughs) It's a shame because, you know, Ghostbusters, the franchise is fun. And, you know, for me, it was a very formative movie. I was 14 when it came out and saw it in the theater. I've been looking forward to Afterlife coming out since, I want to say, before the pandemic, actually. Really? Yeah, because I knew it was being made, and I knew that it was helmed by Ivan Reitman's son, with Ivan Reitman being involved. So I've been looking forward to it, and you know, I I watched as Paul Rudd was attached, and the first teaser trailers came out, and then pandemic. <laughs> That's happened to my love affair with Dune. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm a big fan of this type of comedy movie. Like Beetlejuice is another one of my favorites, even though it's uh, can't be. <laughs> yeah. Well, so is this one. Yeah, yeah. Beetlejuice is a a little more on the abstract side, though, I think. Yeah. Anyway, (laughs) I love the idea that they were taking the next generation, actually two generations now, because it's been 30 plus years. They're all been. The the Ghostbusters. (laughs) Man, are they ever. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I love the generational aspect of universe building when it happens in in Hollywood, because it's usually so hard for them to do. Honestly, I think Ghostbusters Afterlife is a very well done homage to the original, while being a good movie in its own right that works as a great sequel as well. That's my take on it. Yeah, and I'd agree with you. I mean, when I say that I haven't seen a Ghostbuster movie since the 90s, I'm just, it's never been something that I've been a huge fangirl about. And so mm-hmm. I remember seeing the movies originally, but they'd kind of fallen from memory. And I did have the opportunity since I watched this movie over a week ago to go ahead and get a hold of the original and watch it a couple times before we record tonight. So actually, the original is closer in my memory than Afterlife is, because <laughs> I've seen the original twice since I've seen Afterlife. And one of the things that really struck me was I hadn't realized back when I was a child, you know, because I was a child in the 80s when this movie came out, that this movie was so heavenly humanistic, and that it had so many things in it that probably I would not consider appropriate for children in today's day and age, yeah, or in that age either. And so <laughs> this movie was really made for adults. And so I don't think, you know, as we give our initial reactions about this movie, I will caution people who have young kids anyway. Yeah. 
Yeah. These movies are really not appropriate for children. I don't think the philosophies in them are good. And it's not because they deal with ghosts and they're scary or anything. I think it's some of the more humanistic philosophies mm-hmm. and and some of the amoral nature of characters, particularly Dr. Pinkman in the original. Yeah, yeah. There's just some things in these movies that I don't think are appropriate for families. And yes, there's a lot of comedy involved in that, but it's the kind of comedy that is on the immoral side of things. It's like, yeah. And in this one, there's a couple, what I consider to be cringeworthy uh, comic elements, like talking about child virginity. Mm -hmm. And let's face it, 15, 16, and 17 year olds are still children. Yes. And I don't think making jokes about still being a virgin is appropriate. Yeah. And then there was the references to relationships, adult relationships from a children's standpoint that were inappropriately done. Yeah. And I, I'm not going to go into that because that's not the point of our podcast at all. But I, I just wanted to say up front that I was a little appalled at how humanistic and inappropriate these movies were just the the original and this one together i'm not saying that saying that i didn't like the movies yeah yeah i'd love to see the concept of ghostbusters from a theologically sound perspective (laughs) (laughs) if that even makes even the slightest bit of sense because it probably doesn't but not um, from the angle that they're doing it in this movie right You know, a Calvinist would have no place in the Ghostbusters universe. Yeah. Somebody who believes in the Bible wholeheartedly and embraces the theology of the gospel all through the Old and New Testament would be completely out of place. It would ruin the concept behind this movie. The whole premise. Yeah. Yeah. The premise. premise, And we'll get into that because it's one of the major themes that we want to talk about. But beyond that, I do want to comment that the comedy in this was good because it was so bad. Yeah. <laughs> oh, especially Phoebe's jokes. I, I, I loved them. And she did such a good job on innocent and awkward delivery. <laughs> Even down to when she winked after calling her teacher obtuse making a a triangle joke yeah it was one of my favorite parts that that was why she winked (laughs) yeah exactly the actress who played phoebe mckenna grace we've actually seen her in a couple other things Mm -hmm. she she had a minor role in captain marvel where she played the young carol and she was in handmaiden's tale recently which i haven't actually watched yeah that is really anti-god piece so i don't think we would want to yeah tackle. yeah no kidding oh she's a regular on the young sheldon tv series which i find sheldon to be annoying he gets under my skin from big bang theory sheldon gets under my skin he's actually one of the reasons why i never liked that show i can never understand why so many christians liked the big bang theory because it was so oh yeah irreligious and anti-god i was like why do you like this show i just don't get it i tried it like a couple times because people were just raving about what a good show it was and both times that i watched it i was like totally turned off by the anti-god nature mm. of the show and i was like i don't know why people there was like quite a bit show. of it yeah yeah i liked it for the geek 
element. Mm. It really preached to my inner geek, so to speak. <laughs> I guess I'm just too sensitive to anti-God philosophy these days. Yeah. Yeah. I came out of the movie like having no idea where I had seen her before. And the other roles that it turns out I've seen her in are so different to the role of Phoebe in this. I was very impressed that such a young actor, actress, I don't know what we're supposed to call them anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Can pull that off. Yeah. 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 And not only did she pull off the feeling of being socially awkward in a science geek kind of way, but she also had certain elements where she mimicked uh, the role of Egon Egon, uh, in the first movie. Yeah. That I thought it was probably a combination of really good directing and really good acting that just made it stand out in my mind. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I I appreciated her sidekick, too, podcast. Oh, and yeah. I think we have to talk about him because this is a podcast. So yeah, yep. we have to talk about podcast. And he's just like, I'm podcast because of my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> And he carries a mic around everywhere he goes so that he can Why do, do people call interviews. you podcast? He's <laughs> Why do people call you podcast? Oh, they don't. I call myself that. <laughs> because of my podcast. <laughs> and one of my one of my favorite lines in the film was his You're my subscriber? I know that that was great. My like he only has the one subscriber. And then the reply is, and I really like it. It really got came into its voice in what was it episode on the forty six episode? Forty seven, yeah, forty seven. <laughs> really found its voice on the forty sixth episode. So, <laughs> I was like, I'm gonna have to go back and see what our forty sixth episode was. And when Phoebe said, "You know, I'll check it out," and he has a USB stick all loaded to give her. <laughs> Not only that. But the USB stick is a My Little Pony. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. His his character, you know, in our pre-show discussion, I I called him the comic relief. And you're right, he's not the comic relief. But in the same way that Egon was the brains and Ray was the heart of the original Ghostbusters, podcast really is the heart of what turns out to be the ghost-busting team in Afterlife. He he has such wonder. He doesn't ever seem to express fear. It's always wonder and interest and yeah. just an openness yeah, exactly. to believe. Yeah. And he, he's got the passion. He is the Ray character. Right. But, you know, he's not derivative of Ray, <laughs> which is so <laughs> hard to be the same type of character without feeling derivative. Logan Kim plays podcast and he just did such a good job. So one of the things that McKenna Grace has done is this TV miniseries of shorts doing homage to the Princess Bride, where she played uh, the role of the grandson. And as it turns out, Logan Kim was in the same episode (laughs) as the grandson also. Oh my goodness, so they were playing the same one. And that is his only other acting credit in IMDb. Wow, so he's a newbie. Yeah, very much so. And He did a great job. So he must have done it. I wish I could go back and figure out where to watch this thing. 
but he must have developed a chemistry with her. Yeah. Huh. That's cool. Well, I mean, that whole quirky character was was perfect, and I just thought it was a, a nice, just, you know, parallel with the fact that we were doing a podcast episode on this movie, so we had to yeah, first talk about podcasts. Exactly. <laughs> And you know what? We, we I need to interrupt and talk just a little bit about the music, because I don't think we've dealt with that yet. <laughs> uh, can't forget that. You no, know, we can't forget the music. So the, the score for this was done by Rob Simonson, and don't think we've seen his name before. Uh, looking through uh, the pieces that he's done, he's done some like TV shows and stuff in the past, mm-hmm. but I don't really recall ever hearing a score by him yeah. before. Though he has done movies that I have seen I don't really remember the music, which is bad. (laughs) Especially for you. I mean, I go through 12 movies and barely notice some music, but you always notice some music. (laughs) Yeah, well, this time I I noticed the music in Ghostbusters, but Mm -hmm. I just, I guess his stuff hasn't um, stood out enough to me in the past that I was like, going to remember his name. I love that soundtrack, (laughs) you know. You know, not like, I think it was like the movie uh, Stargate, when that original Stargate movie came out. Oh, yeah. It was a brand new composer, David Arnold. And I just remember, oh, I love this soundtrack. I'm going to remember this guy. He's going to go somewhere. And he kind of did. I mean, he's done some pretty big soundtracks. But yeah, this guy, I don't remember ever remembering his name. So the soundtracks that he's done that I've heard, there hadn't been that many of them, and I don't remember them. So he didn't didn't stand out to me. It's looking at the list, I only recognize even recognize a few things on it, let alone have seen them. So Yeah, he obviously doesn't cater to the kind of movies and TV shows that we watch. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll play a little bit of that here just so we can get in the mood for this movie. We can't talk about the Ghostbusters movie without talking a little bit about the Ghostbusters theme, because they did kind of re-record it for this movie from the original. Yeah. That that was actually the, the fun part when you got to the end of the movie and they just started playing the Ghostbusters theme. They integrated it quite a bit in the tones of it, quite yeah. a bit into the, the music in the background. And I really like when they do that when they're, you know, doing homage to, to uh, another An older mo- movie. Yeah. 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 It yeah. gives you a taste and, and helps you get into that mindset, that mood. Yeah. And, you know, the fact that I haven't really paid attention to the Ghostbusters series or movies through the last two or three decades means that I I do know the song. Yeah. So it's like when we got to the end of the movie, it's like I can sing along with this. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I know the song. 
through working with you, you've trained me to pay more attention to the soundtrack in the movies that, that we're watching. And I was noticing it and I re-listened to the soundtrack yesterday as I was working. And I noticed that there's a whole bunch of very haunted house-ish slides all the way down the scale and that ends in the really mm-hmm. low register. Yeah. Like the beginning of the Dolby sound thing. It has a very um, comedic. Yeah. So like it, it plays on to the comedic timing. And at the same time, you know, this haunted house feel, like you said, of a comedic haunted house kind of movie. I think that mm-hmm. that they, he really played to that in the music. So it worked really well. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that overall it was a good package music wise. I think it complemented the, the story, which is exactly what you want it to do and didn't right. stand out in its own. Overall, I think the music was really suited well for the for the movie. Yeah. And, you know, I think maybe that's what Rob Simonson does best. Maybe that's why I don't really remember hearing mm-hmm. his music in the movies that I have seen that he scored is because he does meld the score so well into the movie that it doesn't stand out as spectacular, which a lot of times you really don't want the music to take front stage. So that yeah. might be a good thing. Exactly. So overall, a good, good job. Yeah. Good job. Yeah. You've got our vote, Rob. Woohoo. <laughs> There were some things that I didn't like in Afterlife, but I mean, they're not against the movie themselves, but they're more against how my values aren't reflected in the movies anymore, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The big thing that bugged me was how the idea of family is just not important. In this movie, Callie, the mother, Trevor and Phoebe, the the kids are a family, but Callie, she doesn't come across to me as a mother character. Um, She's and the the thing that really bugged me was she frequently badmouths her father, not only in front of her children, but to her children in some really bad ways. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much all of her lines are are very negative. She doesn't have a very positive outlook on life. (laughs) It reminded me of stories you hear about when divorced parents have shared custody and when they each have the children, they spend a certain amount of time bad-mouthing the other parent, Mm -hmm. which I feel is damaging to the point of it should be considered abuse. It's a psychological attack on the child. And it really, really bugs me when when I hear about that. And, and you know, she's not even just, to you know, bad-mouthing her father. But she bad-mouths her children, too, because there's, like, lines in there where, you know, she makes comments about that she doesn't have any money because she has children or the exchange with her son where she says, you don't think I have a life. And he says, no, you're a mom. You live for us. It's like, yeah. Yeah. She acts like everything that's bad in her life is because she's saddled with these children that she has to take care of. And she does it to their face. I mean, she's, she's not a very nice person. (laughs) Yeah. What was it? Uh, You said you had savings. That was before I had kids. Yeah. Yeah. So she, she's basically blaming her circumstances on her children. And that just, yeah, I agree with you. She's 
not the best character. There, she does have a little bit of redemption at the end of the movie, though, and I think that yeah, uh, I think they were trying to imply the fact that the reason why she was such a bad mother was because she didn't have you know good parents herself, and so it's kind of that connection that we have where the sins of the father are visited on the children kind of thing where you know she's a bad mom because she had bad parents and so she doesn't know how to properly raise children herself mm-hmm. yeah it, i really like the actress i thought she did a, a really good job and i think part of the reason that she that i think she did a good job is because she was so dislikable for me mm-hmm but it's the way the mother was written. I I feel like it put too much on the children. Yeah, they have to be the mature ones, which, you know, a lot of times in, in these single parent households nowadays, I think that that happens more times than we'd like to, to think. Yeah. How mature the children have to be because of the selfishness of the parents. Because a lot of the times, the reason why they are single parents is because of selfishness either on their part or the spouse's other spouse's mm-hmm. part it is it's a sad thing what's happening to the family in our culture today and i mean maybe we just take this as an example of you know the dysfunctional state of the family unfortunately it's probably pretty realistic yeah that's a shame sadly yeah um the the other way that family wasn't really honored in the movie Keeping in mind that it was important to the story that lineage is somewhat obscured, there are two big gaps in the lineage of Callie. the story. Yeah. Yeah. Callie is hiding the fact that she's a Ghostbusters daughter, but we never hear about her mother. And in the original Ghostbusters, Egon and Annie Potts' character, they seem to be getting romantically involved. It's never Janine. confirmed. Janine, yeah, thank Janine. you. Yeah. And Janine meets Callie, but doesn't recognize her, or at right. least pretends not to recognize her. And and we never are mentioned any kind of a mother figure, just that she was abandoned by her father, which would imply that she was raised by her mother. But Yeah. Yeah. And then the same thing happens, which unfortunately is also true in real life that children frequently repeat the marital mistakes of their parents. The same thing happens where Trevor and Phoebe's dad is completely out of the picture and is only mentioned in two lines in the entire movie. He wasn't a colossal jerk. He was just a regular jerk or something like that. Yeah. So they, they don't seem to value family and the relationships and how those relationships embolden and support us. You know, when you're dealing with such big things as life and death, I feel like that was an opportunity lost. Yeah. Well, and I think that just kind of adds to my overall distaste for the humanistic flair of both this movie and the original. I think Mm -hmm. they're just, they're very humanistic. And because of that, they de-emphasize the things that we as Christians hold as the most valuable things. Yeah. And I, I think that's just, you know, the nature of where you go when you dwell in a humanistic world is you, you lose those moral linchpins that hold the family and society together. And these movies are attempting to take something that is a very serious topic and make a comedy out of them. And because of that, 
you lose some of those those moral underpinnings. Yeah, yeah. That hold together the very fabric of society. So maybe that's where they get their comedy. I don't know. <laughs> mm. Well, do you want to jump into the themes? Yeah, I think that we've actually kind of already been because talking yeah, about <laughs> the family and, and how this movie dealt with it, I think is probably one of the big ones. So the first thing I wanted to talk about was I called the theme like a child. And I want to start off with Matthew 18, one through five. Truly, I tell you, he said, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one child like this in my name welcomes me. And verse six, I think, says, um, and he does not welcome me. He welcomes the one who sent me. And I wanted to talk about this because the role of Phoebe is written very well to show the border between childhood innocence and becoming a young adult. Over a 20-minute stretch in the movie, Phoebe goes from telling podcasts that she doesn't believe in ghosts, and I think we're all just kind of meat puppets, to talking to her grandfather's ghost in the workshop, who manifests through just moving moving lamps, mostly. Yeah. yeah. Talking to the ghost as if he were a normal living person. And that jumped out at me because in the framing of the movie, she had this mistaken belief. She received a revelation that her belief was wrong, and she didn't dwell on the fact that her belief was wrong. She just accepted it and started living her life in acceptance of that fact. And that is the kind of faith that we need to have in God. We go through life with all kinds of mistaken beliefs. And we're frequently shown how we're wrong, either through interactions with our brothers and sisters, through revelation in reading the scriptures, or, you know, in the preaching of our church leaders. And when that truth is revealed to us, we need to accept it and integrate that truth into our lives. When I was raising my children, there was a a short time, a very short time, where they would ask me a question and they would accept my answer as immutable truth. And that's the kind of childhood faith that we need to embrace. Yeah. Well, I was just thinking, you know, it is true that children accept things with immutable faith. And and I think that that's also a characteristic that is damaging because then they'll believe anything they're told. They're very gullible. And so I think there's a caution there is that, yes, we need to come to Christ with a childlike faith, but we don't need to be gullible, too, because there's a lot of instances in Scripture where they're, we're oh, warned yeah. against being gullible. And so I think that... What you just kind of explained or described to me sounds a little bit more like gullibility. And so I think there has to be a little bit of a caution. there. The other thing that's really interesting about Phoebe is that there's a line, I think, a little later where they're first dealing with their first uh, ghost bust and podcast asks her, why aren't you freaking out right now? And she's like, overstimulation calms me. <laughs> and And tying that into what you were just referencing with her 
suddenly realizing that there is a ghost that's willing to play chess with her and direct her to find things within his house and all this kind of thing. And she meets it so calmly. Like most people, you know, like a chess set starts moving itself around and, you know, you freak out and go running out of the house. Like, what is going on here? But (laughs) she doesn't do that. And so I think that's part of her personality, you know, that she just takes things as they come. And the more weird and bizarre they are, you know, the steadier she becomes. And, and that's, I guess, just part of the, you know, her character, the way, the way they built it. But she goes from a total unbeliever to just acceptance without much of a, um, a leap in between, you know what I mean? Well, you know, I don't think it's gonna, well, uh, you know, everybody's going to get out of it what they want, but it, I don't right. consider it more like gullibility. I consider it more like when, Jesus called the disciples. You know, mm-hmm. he he walked up to the boat and he said, "Come, follow me." And these guys just up and left their entire livelihoods and in some cases families, right, behind in order to follow Christ because they had received a special revelation. And that's I guess what I wanted to stress is that when we receive a revelation that is undoubtedly true, not that we just think is true, but undoubtedly right. true, then we need to embrace it in God's name. And we need to remember that, uh, you know, truth through revelation only comes through God. Right. Through scripture, too. And I think this is something we had we had dealt with, I think maybe even, was it last year, the year before, when we dealt with the the Harriet Tubman movie, and mm-hmm. we were talking about how she was oh, yeah. voices and whether that was the voice of God. And I got myself corrected on that on a following theology throwdown where we were talking about that the only true voice of God is what comes from scripture. Right. We can't just like dream that God told us something that is not real revelation. That's the kind of revelation that cults are built around. And so we have to be very careful that when we speak of, of a spiritual revelation, it has to be a scriptural revelation because that's the only way God speaks to us right now. Yeah, and if you do feel like you've gotten that, you have to test it with scripture. You can't right. just accept it. Right, and God isn't going to come and reveal something to you that isn't in the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. There was another way that it portrayed the childish nature of Phoebe in particular, that I found chilling, <laughs> like disturbingly so. Mm-hmm. There's this one scene where Phoebe, Trevor, and Podcast had been arrested, uh, even though I questioned the legality of the entire arrest, but that's beside the point. And they are... Well, children who are breaking the law, the, the police can take them into custody until their parents come. Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. But they're standing at the counter being released to Trevor, to Callie. Uh, Yeah, Mm -hmm. Phoebe and Trevor's mom. And the sheriff says something derogatory. I think it's about Egon, who Phoebe has begun to um, idolize uh, as she's learned more about who he was. And she has a flash of temper and she draws the wand from the proton pack and points it point blank at the sheriff and 
you have to remember that in the scenes leading up to this, they have done thousands upon thousands of dollars of damage with this proton pack. In a scene not too long before that, she literally destroyed the track from a bulldozer by shooting it with the proton beam. I mean, the thing is, uh, in the first Ghostbusters movie, they call it like a nuclear power generator in a backpack. And she points this thing at the sheriff. And if she had pulled the trigger, it definitely would have been fatal. And the fact that she did this, that she so quickly lost her temper and went to a... To to that extreme. uh, Yeah, this fatal extreme, both to me, spoke to the inability of children to truly understand the gravity of their actions and the ability for them to have such drastic mood swings that they could go so angry so quickly and hopefully forget the significance, the power of this thing she's holding. It's so selfish and reckless. I was a lot disturbed by it, but reminded that, you know, all children are like this. If it had been a 12-year-old who pulled a gun out of their parents' nightstand and pointed it at somebody who had just been mean to them, it would have had the same effect. It reminded me how children are incapable of making decisions that have such drastic and significant impact in their lives and the lives of others. Yeah, I I think I'm going to temper that just a little bit. I agree with you. Children need direction. And, but at the same time, I think that the irresponsibility of a child in such a situation, some of that is tr- lack of training, lack of discipline. Mm. It, some of it is, is parenting and yeah, lack of yeah. parenting. So uh, we know that children are the epitome of a sinful, selfish person because that's where we're born in sin. And so selfishness, temper tantrums, all of that starts at a very young age, about as soon as you can walk, crawl, and and start to say mama, probably even before that. So, I mean, you want to see true selfishness, all you have to see is a bunch of two-year-olds trying to share toys or not sharing toys, as the case may be. (laughs) So I, I agree with you in your understanding of what children are capable of. But I, I also think that children can be trusted with making good decisions if they've been disciplined and taught how to make those decisions. Yeah. And I think in this instance, Phoebe obviously has not had the parenting to understand, you know, number one, the significance of holding a weapon in her hand, and number two, how to control her temper. Yeah. And so she's reacting naturally without discipline. And I think children can be taught that discipline. And so that's my only comeback right there is yes, children are selfish, reckless, and need to be disciplined on how to mitigate that behavior. And if you're not disciplining them and teaching them uh, good behavior, good manners, and and how to control their own selfish tempers and all that kind of stuff, then yes, they definitely can't be trusted with a weapon. (laughs) Yeah, that's an excellent point because 
we see in this movie what kind of parent Callie is. Right. I mean, the first time you see Phoebe, she she's disassembled the electrical outlet and is fixing a phase variance in her neighbor's electrical circuit. And then, she, then her mom asked her to break into the house when they first get to the, her grandfather's house. Yeah. So, which is cute, definitely, but <laughs> but yes, it's it's an indication that her parents are not her her mom, especially, is not necessarily training her in moral behavior and discipline. Mm-hmm. So, this is a child that's been allowed to pretty much free range, and that's not appropriate for children. They need discipline. Yeah, it's scriptural that children need discipline. Yeah, and yeah. It's, I mean, raise a child up Train in the way, child. Yeah, yeah, in the way he should go. Yeah. So, yeah, this child, this child has not been raised properly. So, in the instance of this, you know, in the police station, she is behaving in the natural, sinful way, and so, yeah, that's what we see. Well, moving along, because we actually have a lot to talk about, and are running out of time. time to do it. Yeah. <laughs> So the main theme that I saw in this movie is the whole humanistic science is the answer to everything. And there were several lines in the movie that kind of dwell with that. One is an exchange that was between uh, Gruberson, who is a kind of a teacher figure, who is also kind of trying to become a parent figure because he's sort of dating Callie. But he kind of connects with Phoebe over science. And so they had found some of this Ghostbuster technology and one of the children, I don't remember whether it's podcast or Phoebe says, is this safe? And he says, no, history is safe. Geometry is safe. Science is nuclear and hydrogen bombs. Science is injecting yourself with the plague and trying to find a cure in time. And Phoebe replies, science is reckless. Mm. So, and then uh, there's another scene where Gubertson and Callie are on a date, and she makes a comment about how she's allergic to science. This is how he describes science. He says, science is pure. It's an answer to all the madness. So this is the way that they kind of represent science in this. It's, like, it's almost like with godlike faith. It's like if you just are, have enough science, you can solve all problems. Yeah. And so I wanted to look up the definition of science because I think that's important. You have to start with good definitions. And so the technical definition of science, there's two of them I'm going to quote here. One is the intellectual and practical activity encompassing the systematic study of the structure and behavior of the physical and natural world through observation and experiment. And two, a systematically organized body of knowledge on a particular subject. So these are the two main definitions of science. And both of those are based on experience and observation. And so we garner information about our physical world by looking at it, by uh, interacting with it, and by observing it. And so those observations are subject to error because they are experiential and they Mm -hmm. are within the realm of what we can know. So I I put that in what we can know because we are finite beings. We do not encompass all knowledge like God does. And so we can only experience so much within our ability to understand and know things. And so science has a fatal flaw to it. It is limited to what we as humans as in our frail physical beings can know. Exactly. And so it 
it's not perfect, it's not pure, and it's not the answer to all the madness. Because of that fatal flaw, it is always going to be limited by what we are capable of knowing. And we are not God, so we cannot know everything. And so there's always going to be, yes, we know this much, but there might be that additional piece of information that we are not capable of accessing at this point that could overturn everything we think we know. There's always going to be that additional piece of knowledge that we don't have that that could overturn it. And science is constantly changing because of that, because we can't know everything. And when we discover some new thing that we didn't know, it changes the things that we thought we knew. And so science is not trustworthy in that way. And so it is reckless. It is unsafe because of that because what you think is your this firm foundation you're standing on is not always as firm as you think it is and i think that's why in first timothy 6 20 through 21 paul cautions timothy guard what has been entrusted to you avoiding irreverent and empty speech and contradictions from what is falsely called knowledge by professing that some people have departed from the faith this is a Kind of a good caution to those of us who live by faith. That's what we are requested to do as Christians, to live by faith. We don't know everything. And so that requires faith to take every step forward because we don't understand. We don't know. And facing the unknown requires faith. Scientists, and especially humanists in our culture today, put so much trust in science without understanding that science can be a quicksand because it is not a firm foundation and it is not a adequate explanation of the unknown that they can put all of their trust in it. Yeah. And people elevate it. They put it on a pedestal and they idolize it. Right. (laughs) Even though there's no way that it can ever be complete on this earth. Right. No scientist is ever going to know reasonable scientist is ever going to say, that's it. I've discovered all there is to know. <laughs> yeah. And that's sadly the reason why I I have problems with so much of our current science. And I put that in quotes because we treat scientists as if they are demigods, like they have all the knowledge and all we have to do is put our faith and our trust in these demigods of our culture because they're going to fix all the problems. And all we have to do is trust in them and they will fix it. And and I think that that is a concern in people of faith. I'm not saying that we should be anti-science. Right. I'm exactly. just saying we should understand the limitations of science instead of putting it up on a pedestal, putting all our faith and trust in it, which is really kind of what this movie does, because this movie is dealing with a spiritual problem. If you look at the original Ghostbusters movie and this movie, they are literally dealing with spiritual, non-natural problems, and they're trying to fix them using science. And it's this undercurrent of science can fix all the problems, even the Mm -hmm. spiritual ones. They leave God out of everything. And so that is, I I think, what I came away, you know, from these movies thinking is I don't remember the original Ghostbusters being so anti-God, but it really is. Because it's elevating science above the true answer to spiritual problems. In Galatians one ten through 12, it says, For am I now trying to persuade people or God? 
Or am I striving to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel preached by me is not of human origin. For I did not receive it from a human source. And I was not taught it, but it came by revelation of Jesus Christ. Our faith is beyond science. It's not something that we can measure or observe or experiment upon. It is something beyond human origin. It's of God. And that's what our faith is in. And I think that, you know, all of this naturalism and that we're living in today, that's like the the leading philosophy of our secular culture is, yeah. is naturalism and humanism. It's, it, it elevates the, the opinions of man above God. Well, it, it excludes God. And it turns science into the faith of the masses. And it, it's scary to me how much faith that we are demanding of people in the frailties of man's ability to understand the world. And science is good. It's a study of God's creation, even, right. if, even if they don't realize they're studying God's creation. <laughs> right. But you have to acknowledge the author of, of it. Yeah, exactly. The author of creation. You brought to mind a scripture that I, I've always thought of when I'm considering science, uh, Proverbs fourteen fifteen, The inexperienced one believes anything, but the sensible one watches his steps. And it really does speak to, you know, it, it's important to be observant. It's important to consider these things and not be gullible, right? Yeah. But that means testing what you see and ensuring that, you know, it holds up to truth. We're, we're called to test spirits with the scripture. Uh, and in right. the same way, we need to test theories yeah. with scripture that our faith is based upon. Right. So we're not knocking science. <laughs> no. But we're, we're knocking people who forget that creation is created. <laughs> And not right. the accident of an, a singularity explosion or something. <laughs> and, and, you know, that's the point. You know, as, as a young earth creationist, I hear all the time that we are anti-science. And it's not the truth. I actually have very good friends of mine who are creation scientists. They They are secular trained scientists and they do real research. And because they are willing to accept the author of the world as the creator that he is, yeah. then their science is more descriptive, I think, than most secular scientists are because they're willing to see God's hand in it. And there's nothing anti-science about that. And th for me, it's more pro-science because you can't acknowledge the beauty and the wonder and the intricacy of the world we live in without understanding that it was authored by somebody. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, in the instance of this movie, obviously science is the answer and they're dealing with a, which I think it's interesting that, you know, my definition of science in, says that it's the study of the physical and the natural world. In this case, we have scientists who are studying the supernatural realm and trying to address it with, with scientific means. And so we have to talk about the dirt farmer who is Egon <laughs> from, from the original Ghostbusters, and he, he goes out, obviously knows that the apocalypse has moved from New York City to this little 
town in the middle of nowhere, which was actually filmed in Canada. And I th- oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. A, a little aside, when I was watching the movie, there's some interesting product placements going on. Uh, number one, YouTube had their name and logo on, on in the movie. And also Walmart had their name and logo in the movie. And the oh, interesting yeah. <laughs> thing is there's there's whole scene filmed in Walmart. And when we were in the store, I kept thinking, this does not feel like any Walmart I've been in. And I was thinking maybe they had just made it for the movie, like it was a set. Well, it turns out it was filmed in a Canadian Walmart, and the Canadian Walmarts <laughs> look different than the U.S. Walmarts, and that's why it looked different. You mean cleaner and doesn't have enough weird people? <laughs> yeah, it was kind of an empty Walmart. I'm sure they cleaned all of the weird people out before they filmed. <laughs> but there is a piece of scripture that is frequently quoted, not only in this movie, but in the original as well. And that's Revelation 6.12, which is, Then I saw him open the sixth seal. A violent earthquake occurred. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of hair, and the entire moon became like blood. And then I went ahead and continued on, because it's the middle of a sentence. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its unripe figs when shaken by a high wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved from its place. So this is the opening. There's seven seals that are opened in the book of Revelation, and this is the opening of the sixth seal. And they were using this as a because there's earthquakes going on, you know, like the ground is shaking. So they're they're going, you know, this is the beginning of the apocalypse or whatever. And I find it interesting that in both movies, they spend so much time talking about the coming of the apocalypse and nothing about the him who is opening the seal. Mm-hmm. They, they talk about <laughs> the scripture completely out of context. And so... In my opinion, you can't have Revelation 6.12 without Revelations 5.1-7. through 7. And that is, that I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne, a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look in it. I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look in it. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He went and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. So this is the hymn that is in Revelation 6.12. He is this mighty individual. He is Christ. He is the slaughtered lamb. He is the Lion of Judah. And he is our Savior. And so to leave him completely out of both of these movies is, to me, an atrocity (laughs) worse than the apocalypse. Yeah. They do like so many people do. They cherry pick scripture to fit their narrative. And in this case, mm-hmm. the narrative is the apocalypse. Right. And, and they wanted an apocalypse without God. Exactly. Which is, wow, <laughs> scary. Yeah. Why would you? <laughs> it's like, you want- I, I want a fire without water. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, they, they show this coming of this demigod, Gozer, or a demon, however you want to call it. I think 
they represent it as kind of this womanish character with her hell dogs or whatever. Mm -hmm. And she is, I think she's referenced kind of like a God, but it's like, this is the apocalypse they're attempting to, you know, prevent is this goddess breaking through into the realm. And so Egon has discovered that they stopped it in New York. It moved to a different, Yep. Part of the country and started all over again. And so he had uh, created a, a scientific way of preventing it. Every time it started to rise up, you know, it got blasted and, and sent down and which would cause an earthquake and nobody could figure out why this town was shaking so much. But all of this to say is that this was, you know, this anti-God version of the apocalypse that could be stopped by mankind's science. And it was a reminder to me that in Ephesians 6, 12, it's actually interesting how often Paul spoke against humanistic philosophy and humanistic knowledge. He does it quite a bit, actually, in almost every epistle, there's some kind of reference to it. But in Ephesians 6, 12, it says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of the darkness, against the evil spiritual forces in the heavens. So these are what we wrestle against as in a spiritual sense. And without God, which Ephesians 6, 12 is the beginning of the armor of God scripture, where it talks about how we stand against these things. And it's the only way we can stand against them is by donning the armor of God, which is, you know, the scripture and prayer and all of these pieces that we assemble to together as Christians. And we stand with the sword of the scripture in our hands and of truth and to be able to combat all this. Instead, we have these fragile human beings who are standing with photon packs or whatever they are Mm -hmm. uh, against a (laughs) demonic creature that is attempting to take over the earth. Um, To be honest, I would much rather stand with the armor of God. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And then in Colossians 2, 8 through 10, it says, be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled by him, who is the head over every ruler and authority. And why would you want any other power <laughs> when you're dealing with such a supernatural foe? Why would you want any other power? Because except the one the power of God comes with a responsibility to not rebel. And that's yeah. what people want to do. They want to live life on their terms, not on his. Mm-hmm. And we get such a beautiful picture of what that does to families in these movies. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, do we ever. Yeah. And before we leave this theme, I did want to briefly touch on a big shift I saw between the 1984 version and the 2021 version. Now, these are technically sequels. They're generational sequels, mm-hmm. but they deal with the exact same sequence of events. So Gozer's coming through the the two of hellhounds or whatever they are, uh, possess people because they're the gatekeeper and the key master or whatever they are. And they have to join together to bring in Gozer. And there's a scene in both movies where Gozer addresses a person and asks if they are a God. And in both instances, as I wasn't sure who was in the second one, but Tim has, has seen the movie twice. I've only seen it once, and he said it was Ray both times. Yep. So in the 1984 version, Ray is given is asked that question, and he answers it no, and they immediately get 
swatted by Gozer. And, and then Peter, yeah. Uh, Peter, yeah, says, well, when you're asked if you're God, you should say no. <laughs> Definitely say yes. So in this version, when she, when Gozer asked, the reply was, yes, we're all gods. We're all special. So there is a definite shifting in the whole uh, fundamental ideology of these is that, no, of course we're not gods in 1984. And in this one, oh, definitely, we're all special. We're all gods. And I think that shows the generational shift in the way humanism has definitely taken over our yeah. culture and society. Yeah. It speaks to the idea that, well, that's what humanism is. You know, we are our own salvation. Own gods. Yeah. We, it's, we're going to get ourselves out of our own problems. <laughs> yeah. And that's exactly what these Ghostbuster movies are all about. It's like getting ourselves out of these massive spiritual apocalyptic problems with science and bravado. And that is all they are standing on. And somehow they managed to bumble through and fix it. That's part of the comedy, I guess, of the whole thing. It sounds like I'm very negative about this movie, probably as much as negativity as I've been to any movie. But all in all, I thought I enjoyed the movie. It's Ex just there's so much. Except Wrinkle in Time, just for the record. Yeah. Except yeah, Wrinkle in Time. But I didn't enjoy that movie. I enjoyed this movie. Yes. <laughs> From a comedic standpoint, it was funny. I enjoyed some of the characters, but overall, the philosophy of the movie is just rotten. And yeah. so when we deal with a podcast that has to expose the rotten philosophy of the world, this movie is going to get trashed because the underpinning philosophy of this movie in its entirety is just rotten to the core, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we can see why they make some of these decisions and present it some this way, because it really wouldn't serve the story otherwise. But it's it's just so common in everything we see. And, and I keep going back to, what was it, Interstellar? Was that the one mm -hmm. where where he saved his own life by going back in time and plucking on strings and pushing books out from behind a bookcase or something like that. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. He became his own salvation. Yes, exactly. That, that's exactly it. And, and that's just so common for what we see in movies and even in comedies. Yeah. That's, that's humanism taken over our world. <laughs> yep. So I have some experience working with children who are, autistic on the spectrum. Not a lot of experience, a little more than I would think is probably average. And it occurred to me that... So let me take a step back. The main plot point here is that Egon Spangler foresaw Evo Shandor's efforts to resurrect Gozer from Oklahoma, uh, from Summer, Somerville, Oklahoma, and tried to convince his friends and co-workers, Venkman, Peter, Ray, and, and Winston, about yeah, the threat. Yeah, let's stick with first names, because yeah. his last names are mouthfuls. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> but was unable to convince him of the threat. What I noticed is that Egon is presented in such a way that it was comic in 1984. But today he were evaluated, I'm convinced he would have been referred to as on the autistic spectrum. Incredibly smart, but almost an 
invalid when it comes to social interaction. Mm -hmm. And Phoebe is portrayed in a nearly identical way, almost certainly to create the necessary link between her character and, and her grandfather's character. But Egon abandoned his friends and left his family behind, stole the equipment he needed to address this threat that he was absolutely certain was coming, relocated to Somerville, where he spent at least 20 years devising and implementing a plan to stop the the return of Gozer. And I think it's reasonable to believe that Egon did not possess the ability, that he did not possess the social skills to communicate the threat in a way that Ray, Peter, and Winston could understand. Yet in the movie, the three have completely disowned him. And when in a phone call, Phoebe, who has not yet identified herself, asks Ray about Egon, Ray's immediate response is, Egon Spengler can rot in hell. And perhaps that particular damnable statement carries more weight for me and other Bible-believing Christians than it does for the secular audience. Oh, yeah. They use hell all the time. And I do want to add to that also before you complete yeah. that thought that when when uh, Phoebe asks her mom about her grandfather, she, she says, what kind of scientist is he? And, and her mother said, the kind of scientist that repels loved ones. Mm. So this was the way his daughter described him. Yeah. Uh, so the thing is, is that all of these people knew Egon. Now, Callie might have been excused because it appears that she was eight or younger when he left the family. So I don't think an eight-year-old would recognize this level of autism in an adult. They, they might consider it weird, but they would not understand the... Uh, Communication problems. Yeah, yeah, the way that autism just alters the very reality that the autistic person lives in. Right. But Ray, Peter, and Winston, they knew. They worked with him for years and years and years. So they had no excuse. They claimed to love him, but they turned on him not only quickly, but drastically, and you know, I drastically enough to damn him. Yeah, and I think that part of that, going having just recently watched the 1984 movies, I think that they never took him seriously. Because when you go back and watch the original movie, they were all in it for the fame and the fortune. They were not in it for the science. And all along, Egon had a a duty and a perspective of what they were doing that the rest of them didn't. And so I think it this movie is a very good sequel because it really continues the arrogance of the characters and mm -hmm. how that impacts you know, the relationships between them. He was always on the outside of the other, of the group in, in his love for the whole science of it. Yeah. And for him to have seen what he saw and, and not be able to communicate it and to just go off and do it on his own, which is basically what he did. 
I think it fit well, not only with his character, but with their characters, because there was absolutely no glory in going into Somerville, Oklahoma to stop Gozer. Yeah. It was- yeah, that's a good point. The reason that I wanted to bring this up is because um, as Christians, we're called to love. And that love does not require us to be accepting of things that are clearly against God's will. Mm-hmm. that are listed in scripture as being in opposition in rebellion to God's design we are not called to accept that a man has decided he is actually a woman right but we are called to be respectful of them as they like every other living human being on this planet are in the image of God. And the love that Ray, Peter, and Winston fail to demonstrate to Egon that we witnessed through this casting him away so easily, that love is lined out, is laid out for us in scripture. And I had three in particular that came to mind. And the first is a song. <laughs> that even I both knew separately of each other, but the same way. And I'm going to entertain you all with my (laughs) rendition of the first, uh, the first part of it. And that's beloved. Let us love one another, love one another. (laughs) Love is of God. And everyone who loveth is born of God. And knoweth God, he that loveth not, knoweth not God, for God is love. Beloved, let us love one another. First, First John, John 4, 4, 7, and 8. <laughs> and I love it. I'm a little disappointed, though. Should we tell them that where the that's C- from? <laughs> uh, you know, for me, it was in a child's cantata that I did. I, where did you hear it? It's on the, the Salty's... Yes, yeah, Salty's Hymnal. Yeah, it's from the Salty's Hymnal, and, yeah. it's, and it's from the the record Bullfrogs and Butterflies. Oh, I don't know Bullfrogs and Butterflies, so I have to look that one up. The CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, which is the one that I primarily use, along with the ESB, says, Dear friends, let us love one another, because love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Which isn't quite as lyrical in my mind, but you know, it's probably, it's accurate. So, and the next one I wanted to mention was Galatians 5, 22 through 23. Which will, you will not see. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Uh, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Oh, that's actually all of 23. And the, the point here is that if, Christ is in us, then we should be seeing these fruits as a result. If you do not see these fruits, then you are not nurturing the spirit within. And you need to make changes so that you see these fruits develop. If you do not see the fruits of the spirit in your life, there is something wrong that you need to address. And uh, I would encourage you to seek out a Bible-believing leader, a preacher, an elder, 
somebody in a Bible-believing church who can help you hold yourself accountable and develop these fruits. And finally, Colossians 3, 12 through 14. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. And this all speaks to what Ray, Peter, and Winston did not do. And it reminds us the importance of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and compassion that we need to have when dealing with everybody in our lives, whether it's the the cashier at the grocery market, whether it's a transvestite sitting across the table from you, whether it's the spouse to whom you have been married for 30 years, or the child that you have raised from infancy, or the, the man you divorced, you know, 10 years ago. We cannot survive as a society without the fruits of the Spirit. And I'll get off my soapbox now. <laughs> well, it's a good soapbox. So we're thankful so much for everybody who's tuned in and listened to this entire episode. And we want to thank our supporters who are Isaiah Santiano, Craig Hardy, Stephen Brown II, David Lefton, and Peter Chapin, who generously support us monthly. If you would like to also support us monthly, you can go to patreon.com slash are you just watching or to PayPal dot com slash paypal me slash a y j w and you can sign up to support us in either of those ways if you can give your feedback by commenting on our show notes which for this episode will be at are you just watching dot com slash 123 you can call us at 513-818-2959 and leave a voicemail or you can email feedback at are you just watching dot com we do want you to join our Facebook discussion group, which you can get to by going to areyoujustwatching.com slash community, or you can just look for Are You Just Watching on Facebook. Or more, we would like you to join our Discord community. Uh, we are slowly building a group of people to communicate with us. And if you're in a member of Discord, you can actually come and listen to us as we record our episodes. And you can get to that by going to areyoujustwatching.com slash Discord. That's D-I-S-C-O-R-D. And of course, subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And those reviews are very meaningful to us. It's helpful to know that there are people out there listening to us and and your feedback is very valuable. I believe we will be doing the new Marvel movie, Spider-Man, which as of this recording is coming out next week. I'm real excited about it. Actually, this week. I'm hearing very good things about it. Yeah. Uh, very emotional. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to that. And it'll come out probably later in January, our episode on it, but it will have been out for several weeks by the time we get around to recording it because we have to get through the Christmas holidays and get this podcast <laughs> edited and posted before we can even think about it. So 
So we wish everybody a Merry Christmas and a blessed new year and hoping that there are good things coming in the next year. The last two years have been fairly traumatic. So I'm looking forward to yeah. some good things, but that's all in God's hands. He is in control and thankfully sovereign that we, we can't wish things into occurrence uh, that this is all in God's sovereignty. And we thank you. Thank him for being in control because we would mess things up completely. If oh boy. Would we? ever <laughs> so thank you so much for listening i'm e franklin i'm tim martin and don't just watch the christian podcast community is a cohesive group of like-minded christian podcasters proclaiming the truths of christ with expertise and passion in the areas of theology church history christian living evangelism apologetics parenting homeschooling sermons and much much more so check us out at christianpodcastcommunity.org one stop for all your favorite christian podcasts christianpodcastcommunity.org